There's the rule of threes you might have heard about, maybe if you ever took a health class or biology class. And the rule of threes is pretty simple when it comes to survival. Humans can usually survive for three minutes without oxygen, it's said, three days without water, and three weeks without food. That's the rule of threes that you sometimes hear talked about. And while that rule has exceptions to it, the concept is the same. Humans need certain things to survive and to live. We need oxygen, water, food, and you can even add to that. We need sunlight, companionship, and sleep to survive. Physically, those are all things that help us keep and stay healthy. And in our passage today that Dave read, thank you, Dave, it was a little longer than most, so thanks for, for reading for us. In our passage today, Jesus talks about what humans need for survival in a similar way to the rule of threes. But he has a different rule he's going to talk, he talks about. And he's not talking about physical life like he often does. He talks about spiritual life. And as he talks about this spiritual life, some people abandon him and they walk away from him. So let's review a little bit where we are here in the book of John, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, uh, John likes the number seven. He includes seven miracles, seven signs in the book. He includes seven I am statements that Jesus says, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am, you know, other things. And he also includes seven long discussions or discourse passages, and that's what we're in here today. We're in the fourth of those seven discourses. And just before this, Jesus had been up there east of the Sea of Galilee on the mountainside where he fed those 10,000 people, and then he comes down off the mountain and he sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee and he shows up to them and calms that storm, and then they end up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And the message seems to be pretty clear to these people, that Jesus is the Savior, that they're dependent and they're needing something, and Jesus is there meeting their needs. And that's where we're at here today. Jesus is starting to talk with these people, both the crowd and the disciples. And here we see kind of three questions that the people throw out to Jesus, and then three long answers that Jesus shares back with them. And if you have a sermon outline there, we're only going to read portions of this passage. And the first portions we're going to read look at the work of God and what God does. And the first thing we see God doing here, the first thing that Jesus describes for them, is that God draws people to himself, Jesus says. Starting by reading verse 44, and then we'll jump down to verse 65. Jesus tells the crowd, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then if you jump down to verse 65, it says something similar. And Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been given unless it has been granted him from the Father. And this idea that God draws people to himself is something that Jesus has said before. If we read up in verse 37, Jesus told us this. Uh, we read this verse last week, but I didn't focus on this part of the verse. 
He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus repeats this idea that God the Father draws people to him three times for emphasis in this chapter. And what it means to be drawn to Jesus is the idea of coming to Jesus in faith for salvation. And this is something that we see as God's decision, that people are drawn to him. Because of the power of sin that's in our lives, sin is kind of like quicksand. Once you're in it, you're stuck in it until God reaches down and grabs you out of sin and brings you to himself. Now, do we have free will and free choice? Of course we do. That's why we see evil and wickedness in our world. But when it comes to salvation, there's a certain element of God drawing us to him and pulling us to him. Over the years, I've sometimes asked people kind of two questions when it comes to this idea of God drawing people to him. If I asked you, would you say that you, before you were a Christian, were you seeking out God? Were you chasing God and looking for him? Or was God the one looking for you? And was God chasing you? Was God finding you where you were? and drawing you to him. It's just a simple question. Which of those sides would you find yourself in? Most people, as I've asked them, find themselves in that other side over here. I was on drugs, I was addicted to alcohol, I was doing my own thing, I was chasing my career, and God found me and pulled me in to him. So this idea that God draws people to himself is something Jesus has said before in the chapter. It's God's decision, but it's also something that God emphasizes throughout scripture. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul writes, God who has set me apart even from my mother's womb called me through his grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. See, I believe scripture teaches that just as this passage points out, God the Father takes initiative to draw people to himself. He works in their heart and he brings people to himself. And this is great news for us as people that are trying to engage with non-Christians and share the gospel because it takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to make the gospel the most amazing, enticing thing ever because God is the one working in their hearts. We don't have to have an answer to every single question they have because it's God that's working in their hearts and drawing them to him. Of course, we play a part in it, and we have non-Christian friends, and we share the gospel. That's always our part, but it's ultimately God that's doing the work. So just as God draws, draws people to himself, God also illuminates truth for his people. And Jesus quotes an Old Testament verse here in verse 45. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. See, God's initiative to reach people includes what's called illumination. Jesus quotes an Old Testament verse, probably here from Isaiah chapter 54, and probably also it's taken from Jeremiah 31. 
And that is a teaching that where God works inside people to respond to the truth and to accept him. Illumination in this way likely includes the work of the Holy Spirit that softens people's heart towards God. It helps them understand their sinful nature and their need for God. And it helps them accept the truth that Jesus died for their sins. That's what illumination is. God's Holy Spirit working in people to draw them to him. John Calvin, who I sometimes read a little bit, he uh, was a part of the Reformation four or five hundred years ago. He writes about this. He says, No man, whatever may be his acuteness, can arrive at faith by his own sagacity. He wrote 500 years ago, so he uses words like sagacity. For all are blind, he writes, until they are illuminated by the Spirit of God. And therefore they only partake of so great a blessing whom the Father dines to make partakers of it. So God's initiative includes illumination, but God's initiative also includes the option of all people. It's not just Jews that get to accept Jesus' offer of salvation here. It's everyone. It's not just men, it's women too. He takes initiative to save people from all walks of life, single or married, white-collared workers or blue-collared workers, computer technicians and car mechanics, alcoholics, or people that have never had a drink in their life. All of these are groups of people that God can take the initiative to reach and draw to himself. And when they come to him, it means repenting of their sins, turning away from that sinful lifestyle, and starting to walk and follow God. So that's the work of God, that he draws people to himself and he illuminates his truth to his people. But then there's also the response of his people that Jesus gives here. This is the application for us. It's not just God that works, but there's a response that's expected of the crowd and of the disciples that Jesus has for them. And we see that these people, God's people, he wants them to depend on him. He wants them to depend on him. Now, I know the word depend and dependence is kind of like a four-letter word for us as Americans, right? For someone to call you dependent is almost an insult. We want to be independent, right? We want to be on our own. Reminds me of two jokes I came across this week. You're laughing before I read my jokes now. <laughs> Bakeries are very dependent on money. They need the dough. Okay, dependent jokes? All right. Here's another one. I rely on hotels so much, I've actually become quite independent. Oh, man, okay. I can't believe y'all were laughing before I read them. So, a couple of dependent jokes. But Jesus here, he wants the people to depend on him. And he uses a couple of images here. He starts by talking about how he is the bread of life. Starting in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus compares himself as the bread of life with the manna of the Old Testament, where in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel leaves Egypt. They go out in the wilderness. They don't have any food to eat. So God starts providing this manna to them that comes down every night. And it's there in the morning when they wake up. And that's what they eat for 40 years was this white manna stuff that came down out of heaven. And there's a few comparisons here of how Jesus and the manna are similar. They both have their source in heaven. That manna came down out of heaven and just as Jesus came from heaven to earth. That manna would come during the nighttime, during the darkness, and was there in the morning when the people went looking for it. And Jesus came during a dark and difficult time in Israel's time. They had been through 400 years of silence and hadn't heard from God. The color, manna was white. And it connects to Jesus. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, comes wearing a white robe to show his purity. Manna was also small. It was this little stuff on the ground. And Jesus came as just a simple carpenter's son in humility. But there's also a few differences that Jesus makes between the manna and himself. The manna lasted for a day, but Jesus says his bread lasts forever. The manna sustained people for a period of time, but his bread feeds people forever. That manna still led to physical death. All the Israelites still died physically, but Jesus' bread provides them spiritual life forever. And when he talks about manna, he says to eat it in verse 50. He says, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And that word eat is in what's called the aorist tense, which normally, most of the time, indicates kind of a once-for-all-time action. You kind of do it once, and then there are effects after. And that's a figure of speech, meaning to believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in him as a decision that we make, and then we experience eternal life that happens after that. It's a once-for-all-time event. So after Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, then he starts to use the picture of his flesh and blood in verse 53 through 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, when I first was going through this book and outlining the Gospel of John months ago for our sermon series, I came across this and thought, hey, this might be a good passage to add to my communion um, devotions, where we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month here at church. I thought maybe I'll add it to my communion, but as I studied this more this week and worked on it more, it seems to not be describing communion for a few reasons. 
One is the timing. This happens one year before Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples and tells them what to do in communion. Also, the people. Communion is something we do as believers as a symbol for our faith. Here Jesus is probably talking to a crowd of non-believers that have not placed faith in him. He also says that in order to have eternal life, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's different because we participate in communion as a remembrance of what's already occurred. And his words are a little different here than in the Lord's Supper or in other passages. He uses the word flesh here to describe him. But when Jesus talks about communion later on, he describes himself as his body, not flesh. And I think that's just a good reminder for us, if I can share a personal example, is sometimes we have topics in our mind or topics in culture or topics in the news that we're thinking about and we'll see them in scripture and we'll kind of take those topics and throw them on a passage. But this week I was just reminded it's good to read the text, notice what's around it, pay attention to the words and try to figure out what's the true interpretation of it just like I did this week to realize it's not really probably about the Lord's Supper, even though that was what I thought originally. And as we noticed in verse 50, how that word eat was a one-time thing, the same tense is used in verse 53, where it says, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. That again is an aorist tense, which indicates a once-for-all action, something you kind of do once and then move on. It's not a repeated eating and drinking like the Lord's Supper, but to eat and drink once and then we get eternal life. To eat Christ's flesh and to drink his blood or a graphic way of saying that people must take Christ into their innermost being. And notice as soon as we do that in verse 54, it says that we have eternal life we have it right now at that moment it's not something we have to work towards or earn or get it's not something that we get once we have a you know a bible with our name printed on it once we've been baptized in water once we become a church member and we can actually vote it's not something we get when we're in a small group or if we go on a mission trip it's something we get at that moment of faith that we place in Jesus. And Jesus, he's at the center of all of this. That our beliefs wrapped up around him, that he was fully God and fully man, that he died for our sins, that he came back to life three days later, that he's in heaven right now, and that he's gonna come back again in the future. And because of those things, we depend on him for salvation. When I was a uh, 18 or 19, I remember having these conversations with my parents about being a dependent on their taxes. I don't know if that's still a thing, but I was in college and then I quit college and there were conversations that occurred about whether or not I could or couldn't be a dependent and what I needed to do and how it helped them or didn't help them. I don't remember all the, but I remember it was kind of a tense issue whether I could be a dependent on my parents' taxes at that point. But it's okay for us to be dependent on Jesus. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to depend on him. He wants to claim us on his taxes because it shows him that we need him. 
and we depend on him for our salvation. So while Jesus is telling them, you know, depend on me, next he tells them, stick with me. See, God's people stick with Jesus no matter what. Starting in verse 60, as we skip a few verses, and I'm just kind of skipping their, um, their questions and taking you right to Jesus' response. Verse 60 says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious of that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Then uh, we already read verse 65, so if you go to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now in verse 60, when it says disciples, that's likely recur uh, talking about the whole crowd that's following Jesus, not referring to the 12 disciples specifically, but that whole big crowd. And these people, they were rejecting what Jesus was said. Those so-called disciples, it says in verse 60, they say that Jesus' statement is difficult, or the NIV calls it hard. And it's a translation of the word skelereos, which means dry, hard, or rough, meaning they probably understood what he was saying, but it was hard for them to accept it and follow it and implement it. And there's probably two reasons they reject what Jesus says and don't want to follow it. One, he's telling them to eat flesh and drink blood, which for a Jew, that was like the last thing they would ever do. Um, they could probably almost picture Jesus, them telling Jesus, Jesus, don't you know Leviticus 17 says we don't drink blood and all that? But that might have been one reason they rejected it. Another reason that they reject Jesus is the people, they wanted a political deliverer not spiritual dependence. They wanted deliverance from the political oppression they had under Rome, not a spiritual deliverer from their sins. And that was hard for them to accept that they weren't going to get what they hoped. See, they had seen Jesus feed 10,000 people up on the mountainside. They had heard about him calming that crazy storm on the Sea of Galilee. They just thought, Jesus, keep doing great things. We'll move on to Rome next, and we'll take back over, and we'll get back what we always wanted. They had great things they thought Jesus was going to do. They thought maybe he was going to replace the political people in power and change things and make it all better. But this was hard for them to accept, because Jesus is saying, I'm only going to change your spiritual life, not your physical life. And this all comes back to what Jesus tells them in verse 47. He had said to them earlier, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That was the essence of all this stuff Jesus is saying in order to get them to believe and have eternal life. And as a result, the crowd 
thins, right? We see a cause and effect there in verse 66. It says, as a result of this, many of the disciples left. But the crowd probably had already been thinning up until this point. See, there are 10,000 people up on the mountainside east of the Sea of Galilee that he feeds those 10,000 people. And then the next day, it says they hop in boats and they cross the Sea of Galilee. I don't know how many people could cross in those boats. 10,000 people would have been a lot of people. So I'm guessing some people had gone back home or gone back to work. So probably not all 10,000, you know, hopped in a boat and chased Jesus across. But if you noticed in verse 59, they're in Capernaum, but they're in the synagogue. And a synagogue at that time was probably slightly smaller than our church sanctuary here. So there definitely wasn't 10,000 people packed in there to hear Jesus. So the crowd has already been thinning. And it just further thins here. But John makes sure to include here that the disciples stick with Jesus. While that crowd thins, he names Simon Peter and he names Judas. So those 12 disciples, they're sticking with Jesus. Another seven that John has. He only names seven of the 12 disciples. He doesn't name all 12. He likes the number seven. But those disciples, they stick with Jesus. And that's a good point for us because those disciples, they stick with Jesus even though they didn't always understand everything he was saying. I know we kind of give them a hard time and beat up on them, but they at least stuck with Jesus minus the night of his crucifixion when they all deserted him. But they were at least there with him up until that point. And it's a good reminder for us that we don't have to always understand everything God is doing around us or everything God says in his word. We can have faith in God, but still seeking to learn and grow and understand things better. And this definitely helps us when we talk to non-Christians. The Christian life can be defined as faith-seeking understanding. And it's okay when we talk to non-Christians and they bring up a topic they see or a question they have with the Bible. It's okay for us to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't understand that either. It's okay to say, that's a great question my pastor can probably answer. You can always use that one. Call his office, 509-765-5270. Just give it to him. To which I'll probably say, I don't know either, but it sounds like a good excuse to have a hamburger or a burrito. So let's all go out together. It's okay for us to have faith, but not always understand everything going on. Just like these disciples might not have understood everything Jesus was saying, but they stuck with him in contrast to the crowd that left him. And as Christians, we might have struggles that we don't always understand. Like scripture says, kids are a blessing. Why is it I don't like to spend time with my kids all the time? Okay. Scripture said kids are awesome, but anytime I get free time, I want to get away from them. Scripture says to submit to your husband, but man, that is hard to do. Why would I submit to my husband? Scripture says to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. Christ died for his church. That's a pretty tough calling. You've got to sacrifice a lot for your wife. Scripture says to be ready when suffering comes. I thought I'd become a Christian and all the suffering would go away. Those are things we might struggle with or might not always understand, but we stick with Jesus anyway. 
And all of us, I'm sure, have people we know that are kind of like the crowd. They're a part of our church family and community, but they've stopped attending for whatever reason. And in a small town like this, we see them at Winco or Walmart. And it's good to remind ourselves that we always want to make it easy for them to come back when they've left. Make it so they can come back and feel welcomed and not feel embarrassed or shamed. When I see people maybe that are part of our church that haven't been here in a while, there's always three things I say. It's nice to see you. Are you doing okay? Check in with them and tell them, I miss you, right? Those are three basic things I think you can do as you see this crowd that is left and maybe we have part of our community that is left. If you see those folks, it's nice to see you. Greet them with a smile. Ask them, how are you doing? And let them know we miss you. Don't shame them. Don't be sarcastic. Don't say you missed the most amazing potluck in the world Sunday because you weren't there or anything like that. Make it easy for them to come back and not feel shamed or embarrassed. So you've seen here the work of God where God says, come to me. But we've also seen the response of the people where God tells the people, depend on me and stick with me. And I started our time together as we wrap up with that rule of three for physical survival. But in the passage, Jesus tells us here subtly about the rule of one. The one thing that we need for our spiritual survival, and that's our faith that we place in him. And that faith starts with God saying to come to me. And God's saying, to depend on me, that's what I want. And God's saying, to stick with me, no matter what. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that tells us how to navigate this crazy world and what it looks like for us. Thank you for these reminders that you want us to come to you. You want us to depend on you. And that you're there for us and you intercede for us. That your office door is always open. You always have an appointment available for us when we come to you. Regardless of what's going on in our lives. So I pray for our church family. If anyone here maybe doesn't know you. Maybe you're working in their heart and your Holy Spirit is illuminating your truth to them. We pray that you would work in their hearts to come to a faith in you that leads to eternal life. And I pray for our church people that know you, that you would help them to stick with you and follow you during the hard times of life and difficult culture we live in. That you would give us the strength and endurance to stick with you no matter what. In these things we pray. Amen. So at this time, I'll invite you to stand if you are able, and I'll read you a benediction, and we'll be dismissed. O oh God, grant us now glimpses of your beauty, and make us worthy at length to behold it unveiled forevermore. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen.